Hello there, you Awakening Wonders. Welcome to Stay Free with Russell Brand. What extraordinary times we're living in where reality appears to be curated to an enormous degree. How do you manage reality? How do you manage perception? How do you manage information. Joining me now is Dr. Robert Epstein, a former Harvard psychology professor, author of 15 books and current director of the American Institute for Behavioral Research and Technology. Thank you very much for joining us today, doctor. My pleasure. One of the claims uh, that you have made that is most astonishing, difficult almost to believe, is that Google are essentially able to curate and control reality. Google that we all use as an ordinary tool in most people's lives you claim can be used to drive and direct an agenda that it can be used as a political tool and even weapon in particular i'd like to ask you about your claim that google was able to direct six million extra votes to joe biden and obviously that's an incredibly contentious claim because talking about electoral fraud and electoral meddling seems to be one of the subjects that's most difficult to discuss and has to be discussed with incredible caution. So can you tell me exactly what it is you mean uh, by Google directing six million extra votes to a, a presumably preferred presidential candidate and how on earth Google would be able to do that? Well, I've been doing very rigorous scientific research on this topic for more than 11 years. And what should really shock you here is that people's preoccupation with election fraud and ballot stuffing and all that, that preoccupation, that obsession is actually engineered by Google and to a lesser extent other tech companies. There's nothing really there. And that's what they do. They redirect attention like magicians do uh, so that you won't look at them. That's exactly what they're doing. So they're directing us to look at things that are very trivial, uh, that are competitive, that have little net effect on elections. Uh, because they don't want you looking at them because they, in fact, have the power and use the power to shift millions of votes in elections, not just in the U.S. election in 2020, where they did indeed shift more than six million votes to Joe Biden, but in elections around the world. By the year 2015, uh, Google alone was determining the outcomes of upwards of 25 percent of the national elections in the world. How do we know this? Well, in 2020, for example, uh, we had uh, 1,735 field agents in four swing states in the US. That's where the action is. What does that mean? That means that we had recruited registered voters, equipped them with special software so that we could look over their shoulders as they're getting content from Google and other tech companies. And we recorded all that content. In other words, we were seeing the real content that they're sending to real voters uh, during the days leading up to an election. And then we measured the bias in that content. We found extreme political bias uh, favoring Joe Biden, whom I actually supported, although I no longer do. The point is we found extreme political bias, and we know from randomized controlled experiments we've been, been conducting since 2013, that that level of bias shifted at least 6 million votes to Biden in that election. In 2022, we had 2,742 field agents in 10 swing states. So in other words, we're monitoring real content sent to real voters by these companies 
recording it in real time and analyzing it in real time. Uh, in 2022, they shifted millions of votes in hundreds of midterm elections throughout the U.S. We know they did this for Brexit, by the way, in the U.K. Uh, and again, they're very good at redirecting attention. What we're doing now is much, much bigger. We decided to build a permanent monitoring system in all 50 U.S. states. At this moment in time, we have 11,638 field agents in all 50 states, which means 24 hours a day we are monitoring and preserving and archiving ephemeral content. That's what they use to manipulate us, ephemeral content through the computers of more than 11,000 registered voters in the U.S. 24 hours a day. We're on the verge of setting up a permanent system like this that will keep these companies away from our elections and from our kids permanently. Whilst I understand that you're able with these agents that you described to monitor the information that Google is publishing, promoting and directing, it does seem to be given the sort of literally global scale of the endeavor that that Google are undertaking to be a relatively small sample size. I will add, of course, that I understand that there are significant contracts that are explicit between Google and the government in areas like data, security, military industrial complex, defense. There are, you know, explicit financial ties as well as donations and lobbying money as well as numerous people in congress and the senate owning significant shares in uh companies big tech companies particularly in this instance that they are supposed to regulate so the possibility and opportunity for corruption is plainly there but i do wonder how you're able with that sample size to deduce such a significant number uh, in, in specifically six million and also the other figure that i've heard in association with your work that a 50 50 split among undecided voters you know i know we're talking about swing states anyway can turn into a 90 10 split how do you map these relatively small figures onto uh like you know such a, a global number and also you suggested that part of your work going forward is to regulate and oppose this trend and tendency how would you do that you're shocking me here because you sound skeptical and yet you have been victimized by exactly these kinds of manipulations and are being victimized now uh, you've been victimized because you have been uh, suppressed. Your content has been suppressed. You've been demonetized. These companies have enormous power to determine what people see and what people don't see. And what we measure in our experiments is how that impacts people's opinions and people's the votes, the, their voting preferences. That's what we measure in controlled experiments. We present at scientific meetings. We publish in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, our work follows the very highest standards of scientific integrity. And this issue of sample size, you've got that backwards. These are enormous sample sizes uh, for statistical and analytical purposes. These are very, very large samples. And so the effects that we keep uh, uh, replicating over and over again, other teams have now replicated, those are significant, for those of you who know any stats here, at the 0 0.001 level, meaning the uh, the probability that we're making mistakes is less than one in a thousand. Uh, we're highly confident about what we've been finding. And the problem here is that we're up against the most powerful mind control machine that's ever been 
developed by humankind, and it's operating in every country in the world except mainland China. And it impacts, you know, how people see those companies. They're they're impacting not just our elections. They're not just indoctrinating our kids. They're literally altering the way we perceive them as a company. That's extremely dangerous. And most of these manipulations that they have access to now that they control exclusively because they're a monopoly, most of these manipulations cannot be seen by the people who are being manipulated. That makes it even more dangerous. So your ability to observe them and to uh, track them operates against what type of control? If you're able to say that people are being sent this information that's highly biased, what would unbiased information look like? I'm open, of course, to the possibility that this unprecedented and fully immersive technology would be used by people that have an appetite to control information. And it seems quite plain to me that that does happen. But because it's so extraordinary and revelatory, because it's so significant and if it were able to be opposed, it could be so seismic in our ability to have true democracy and a public sphere worthy of the name where dissent and conversation could take place freely. I feel that it's important that I understand exactly how that, not exactly because of probably the limitations of my ability to understand, but as precisely as I might, the the way that you're able to say, look, this would constitute neutral information look at what you're actually getting, because I feel that it's very important. Again, you're, you're shocking me because you're, you're, at, you're being the skeptic here. But, you know, good scientists are also skeptics. And there's no one more skeptical about the research I do than, my, than me. So let me give you an example, and I'll, I'll just show you exactly how this works. In 2020, where we had collected a massive amount of data, we had preserved more than uh, 1.5 million ephemeral experiences on Google and other platforms. And you're asking, ephemeral experiences? What are those? Uh, those are those fleeting experiences that we all have online when we're shown search suggestions or answer boxes or search results or news feeds. Uh, they appear, they impact you, they disappear, they're stored nowhere. So no one can go back in time and see what was being done. That's what we've learned to preserve over the years. So here we go. 2020, we find, again, massive, overwhelming evidence of extreme bias. We've preserved 1.5 million ephemeral experiences. And I sent the data in to uh, the office of Senator Ted Cruz. He and two other senators sent a very threatening letter to the CEO of Google. This was November 5th, 2020, two days after the presidential election. And lo and behold, that same day, Google turned off all the bias in the state of Georgia, which was gearing up for two Senate runoff elections in January. We saw them turn the bias off. It literally like flipping a light switch, as I was told by a Google whistleblower, literally like flipping a light switch. We had more than a thousand field agents in Georgia. So we saw the extreme bias that was being shown. We saw them turn it off. Among other things, they stopped sending partisan go vote reminders. In other words, they were sending go vote reminders mainly to members of one party. But on that day in Georgia, no one 
got go vote reminders from Google anymore. So believe me, they have this power. They exercise this power. This is now being confirmed by multiple leaks from the company. For example, emails that were leaked to the Wall Street Journal in which Google employees were discussing how can we use and I can put this in quotes, ephemeral experiences to change people's views about Trump's travel ban. This has been confirmed by multiple whistleblowers, leaks of documents, leaks of, of uh, videos, of a PowerPoint presentation. This is how the company operates. They literally know that they have the power to re-engineer humanity. That is a leak. Uh, that that's a leak of a video called "The Selfish Ledger" from Google. Literally, that's that's what the video is all about, and that's what we're tracking. In other words, we're doing to them what they do to us and our kids twenty four hours a day. We have learned how to surveil them and to preserve that that very very powerful ephemeral content, which normally is never preserved, and they never in a million years imagined that anyone would be sophisticated enough, competent enough, audacious enough to preserve that content. And that's what we are doing. And as of this moment in time, we have preserved in recent months more than 44 million ephemeral experiences on Google and other platforms. We have the data. We have the evidence. And it's court admissible. Wow. So that's fascinating. So presumably there are relationships and an agenda where interests converge to the degree that where there is an established and undemocratic consensus about the nature of this reality that's being formulated, i.e. this is the data that is promoted, this is the information that's amplified, this is the information that's censored, this is the information that people just don't get to see. I wonder... Um, if when you presumably began to uh, garner your expertise and education in behavioralism, tools of this magnitude didn't exist and were not available. Throughout the pandemic period, there was a lot of talk about uh, nudge units. Certainly in our country, there were how behavioral nudges could be offered and sort of B.F. Skinner type nomenclature about how behavior can be controlled, how certain traits can be amplified, certain impressions can be projected and promoted and others maligned, ignored. I, I wonder how your expertise and background in behavioralism, uh, Robert, maps onto this new reality and what advantages they now have having this kind of utility. How does this, how does this, uh, what do I want to say? How does this marry to your conventional understanding of behavioralism in a normal propagandist state like in the last century where it had been print media and TV media and can you tell us what techniques of observation and measurement are preserved and have sustained what must be an epochal shift? I was uh, the last doctoral student at Harvard University of B.F. Skinner, the man who some would say uh, helped to create behavioral psychology. Uh, and Skinner himself did not anticipate what has actually happened. He, he would be shocked. Uh, if he hadn't been cremated, I would say he'd be rolling over in his grave right now because what is happening is astonishing. It's just, it's unprecedented. Uh, companies like Google, and there are others too, but they're the worst offender. Companies like Google now have access because of the internet to new types of manipulations. These aren't nudges. These are massive manipulations. I mean, when we started doing 
uh, experiments, uh, controlled experiments on these new techniques, which we had to discover, we had to name, and then we had to learn how to quantify them. Uh, I didn't believe our data. In the first experiment we ran in 2013, I thought by showing people biased search results, I could shift their voting preferences by two or three percent, which I thought would be, you know, a, a important possibly in a close election. The first shift we got was 43%, which I thought was incorrect. So we repeated the experiment. These are not with college sophomores, by the way. These are with a, this is with a representative sample of US voters. And the fact is we repeated that experiment. We got a shift of 66%. Uh, we continued to replicate. Other teams have replicated this effect. We did a national survey in the US. We did research in India, research in the UK. This has been going on now for more than 11 years. This is rock solid research and Skinner himself would be flabbergasted because what we're seeing now are techniques for shifting people's thinking and behavior without their knowledge on a massive scale to an extent that has never been possible before in human history. That's what the internet has made available. Now, this wouldn't necessarily be that much of a threat except for the fact that the way the internet has evolved, which no one anticipated, is that it's controlled mainly by two big monopolies, to a lesser extent by a couple of other monopolies. And because they're monopolies, it means that these techniques of control, we can't counter. If you, in an election, you support a candidate and you buy a billboard, I can buy another billboard. You buy a TV commercial, I can buy two TV commercials. But if one of these big platforms like Google, if they want to support a candidate or they want to support a Brexit vote or they want to support a political party, there is nothing you can do to counter what they're doing. What we've developed are systems to surveil them, to preserve the evidence, preserve the data. That's the only way I know of to stop them is by gathering the evidence in a way that it is, uh, again, scientifically valid so that the data are admissible in court. And that is what we're doing right now. If people want to know the details, they can go to mygoogleresearch.com. They can go to techwatchproject.org. Mygoogleresearch.com will give them lots and lots of links to lots of published papers, lots of talks I've given. This is serious work. And what's happening here, again, our attention is being misdirected away from what they're doing, but what's happening here, what they're really doing is extremely dangerous and very scary. It undermines democracy. It makes democracy into a kind of a joke. And since you haven't interrupted me yet, thank God, I want to just tell you that President Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was head of Allied Forces in World War II, I mean, he was an insider. In the last speech he gave as president in 1961, some people are aware that he talked about the rise of a military industrial complex and, you know, but that same speech, he warned about the rise of a technological elite. This was 1961. He warned about the rise of a technological elite that could someday control public policy without people's knowledge. And that is what has happened. The technological elite are now in control. Oh, my God, it's terrifying. And one of the things that you covered there was, I suppose, the monopolization or best duopolization 
of the public space. Sometimes when I have something of this scale described to me, Robert, I find it inconceivable to envisage that it could ever be opposed. And yet there's something oddly traditional about the dynamic suggested by this. We once believed that, in a sense, it was the function of the evolved state to preserve and protect the interests of the public against corporate behemoths and corporate gigantism. Now we have a gigantism that's unprecedented, way beyond the instantiations of a previous century where it would have been you know, steel and mineral as resources. But attention and consciousness itself mm. is the faculty, the, uh, is, the, is the object of this monopolization. And it's extraordinary to hear how effective they are at managing and manipulating and to the you know to 46 percent or 66 percent these numbers are sort of uh, astonishing to hear i wonder uh what you think about uh the google's attempt to overturn that 2.6 billion dollar eu antitrust fine i wonder what you think about um for example you know we know we're we're on rumble uh that when rumble covered the republican primaries it was apparently very difficult to find on Google. And I wonder, perhaps most of all, about whether or not, given that it appears that there is a political bias built into the system's current modality, whether or not an alliance with the alternative political party is a possibility in order to regulate and break up these monopolies, because that would seem to be the only way that it could be challenged. And that's the sort of traditional component that I'm referring to, unless you have some kind of like other than the state or an incredibly mobilized population, even with the information that you are uh, curating and compiling, how do you ever challenge something of this scale? They can be challenged, but the antitrust actions that are currently being used uh, in the EU and also in the United States uh, were actually designed by Google's legal team. They're absolute shams, complete shams. Uh, they, they, it, it makes it look like our public officials are doing something to protect us. They're not. Uh, Google works closely with governments around the world, even with the government of mainland China, uh, and works closely with intelligence agencies around the world. Uh, the, the, the people at Google know that no one can ever break them up because you can't break up the search engine. That's their main tool. If you broke up the search engine, it wouldn't work. Facebook knows this too. You can't break up their basic social media platform. That would be like putting a Berlin wall through the, every family in the world. So uh, are there ways to stop them? Yes, but antitrust actions aren't going to do much. What could be done, though, is you could declare this is very light touch regulation. There's precedent for it in law. There's precedent for it in Google, Google's business practices is that you could declare the index, the database they use to generate search results. You could declare that to be a public commons. The EU could do it. In other words, you would allow other parties, other companies, high school students, you'd allow them to build their own search engine with access to Google's index. You'd end up with thousands of search engines all competing for our attention, uh, all trying to attract niche audiences exactly like the news media domain. That's exactly what happens in news media. That could be done simply by giving everyone access to Google's index. Uh, Google would fight it in court, of 
course and we'd see what happens, but that's one way. But the only sure way that I know of to stop these companies, because they're they're affecting not just our elections, but our thinking, uh, where we, what we focus on, uh, they're in they're they're in control of what content we see, such as your content, and what content we don't see, such as your content. Uh, the only way to really stop them is through monitoring, because by monitoring, what happens is we preserve their manipulations. We preserve them. We can make them public 24 hours a day. We can share the findings with public officials, uh, both in the U.S. and other countries, and give people, give organizations, give government agencies, give political campaigns the power they need to bring effective legal action against Google, because we're talking about massive uh, massive amounts of data collected in a scientifically rigorous way. I'll give you one quick example of how hard it is to fight them if you don't have the data. Last year, the Republican National Party sued Google because Google was, uh, was diverting tens of millions of emails that the Republican Party was sending to, the, to Republicans, and Google was diverting all those emails into spam boxes. So the Republican Party sued them. That case got thrown out of court. Why? They didn't have sufficient data to prove their claim. Now, Google was really doing this, and we were not monitoring that. We are now. The point is, we can monitor what they're doing preserve the data on a very large scale that can be used in the courts and that can be used with various government agencies. And will they stop what they're doing? Yes. How do we know that? Because in 2020, when we shared our data with some U.S. senators, they sent a threatening letter to the CEO of Google and Google stopped. They'll have to stop. If they know that they're being monitored on a massive scale 24 hours a day, Worldwide, eventually, by the way, we've already been approached by five other countries asking us to help uh, set up monitoring systems. Uh, if these uh, tech execs know that their data are being captured, that we're doing to them what they do to us and our kids 24 hours a day, that we're monitoring them, we're preserving data that they thought could never be preserved they will stop because you know why? They can still make billions of dollars. They don't have to, at the same time, be messing with our thinking, be messing with our elections, and be especially be messing with our kids. One of the new areas of research that we've started uh, is looking at data coming onto the, uh, the devices of more than 2,000 children throughout the U.S. We're just beginning to look at that, and our heads are spinning. Because what these companies are sending to kids is just unbelievable. And parents are unaware. There's a kind of social engineering occurring here on a massive scale uh, that people are unaware of. You can see it in leaks from Google. You can see this, that this is the intention of some of the top people at that company is to make a better world according to quote unquote, company values. That's actually in uh, a, a video that leaked from the company that was about the power the company has to re-engineer humanity. Literally, they're using the phrase according to company values. We can stop them. The first step is to be aware of what it is they're doing. It sounds like the kind of 
banalised dystopia described both by Huxley and David Foster Wallace to a degree in Infinite Jest, a sort of a corporatized cultural space that where the ideologies are masked in the kind of language of convenience, safety, no real moral spikes, no real ideological thrusts, uh, you know, until there are, but the, the mostly it's kind of the uh, presenting normalcy different. I suppose that in order to significantly change society, you have to change the parameters of what people regard as normal significantly. Now, one of the things that you've talked about is the possibility of you know, dissent and the likelihood of dissent being closed down in such a space. What do you think is the role of independent media within this space? How can independent media succeed in such a highly controlled and curated space? And what do we have to do to ensure that independent voices are able to be heard in a space like this? Although I'm very encouraged, by the way, by what you say about the monitoring, the effectiveness of monitoring this does seem to, you know, somewhat slow and curtail the the uh, prov the proclivities prov uh, prov of this of this organisation in particular, um, and the possibility for sharing that tech and you know having making Google sort of search stuff open source that does seem like an amazing way of dissolving that power but what do we do in particular about the sort of um, news media organizations like this one that necessarily exist within a space that's controlled to that degree well at the moment you're in grave danger i mean that's the bottom line at the moment independent media of any sort are in grave danger one of the most uh, remarkable pieces ever written about this problem uh, long before by the way, he ever became aware of my research, was written by uh, the head of uh, the EU's largest publishing conglomerate, the German. And he he published a long letter in, a, in English and in German uh, called Fear of Google. And it was about how his company, uh, they're in constant fear of Google and every decision they make, every business decision they make, they have to make in such a way as to not offend Google because when Google decides to suppress content, for example, to demote you in their search results uh, or delete you, there's nothing you can do. There's no recourse at all. And you are now out of business. And that's that's the environment in which we live. So no matter what it is, what content you want to contribute to the world, and I'm speaking of you personally here, um, you're really, it's, it's, it's a whim on their part. You're, you're, you're under the literally under the influence of whims at that company uh, about whether you can continue to get your message out. They've done this repeatedly with independent news sources. Uh, they have reduced their traffic to 10% of what it was. They can do that with the flip of a switch. And by the way, that was confirmed to me by one of the whistleblowers from Google. I'm in touch with a lot of the whistleblowers. I'm in touch with people at Google who haven't even blown the whistle yet. So I know way, way, way too much about what's going on there. But they, yes, at the moment, they have that power. They decide what more than 5 billion people around the world can see and cannot see. And at the moment, there is no way to counteract what they're doing. In the U.S., the courts have said over and over again, when they have, for example, shut down hundreds of websites belonging to one particular company, 
Yes, they have that ability. They can block websites. Uh, they block millions of websites every day. March 31st, 2009, they blocked uh, access to the entire internet for 40 minutes. That was reported by The Guardian, and that was never denied by the company. Uh, I eventually figured out, by the way, why they chose those particular 40 minutes to shut down the internet. The point is they have this incredible power. They use this incredible power. The courts in the U.S. have said they have every right to do that because they're a private company. And see, that's the problem here. In other words, even though I agree with a lot of their values because I lean left myself politically, I, I don't like the idea of a private company that's not accountable to us, to any public, having this kind of power. That's the problem here. The problem is not necessarily their values. The problem is the power that they have and that they're utilizing without any accountability to us, to any population, any any group of people around the world. They're simply not accountable. I hope some of your viewers find that to be uh, objectionable. I hope some of your viewers will go to mygoogleresearch.com because... This big national monitoring system that we started setting up last year, uh, I had raised about $3 million to get us going on it. It's going extremely well. We've preserved now more than 44 million ephemeral experiences. We have a, a, a panel nationwide of more than 11,000 field agents in all 50 US states, because we've got to get the system going here fully before we start helping other countries. Uh, but the fact is that $3 million is now almost gone. I need access to other major funding. Uh, one, of, one of our advisors is trying to get us in touch with people in Switzerland uh, who he feels might be very interested. Uh, you know, are there people in, in Europe or in the UK who, uh, who could help us? Because this system has to exist. This is not optional for humanity. If we don't monitor them, we will never know how they're influencing elections or kids or human autonomy. With no system in place like that, I'll, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll make a specific statement. If this system is not fully running next year in the United States, uh, with all, the, all of our data being shared with authorities and with the public every single day, if this system is not there, Google alone will be able to shift between 6.4 and 25.5 million votes in the presidential election of 2024 without anyone knowing what they're doing, without anyone being able to go back in time and look at all that ephemeral content. That's what we're up against here. That's why we must have systems like this, monitoring systems in place that catch the data that they thought could never be caught. That's what we've learned how to do. I need your help and your audience help in making this happen. This horrifying power that you described, already present, already active, already operating, according to your uh, data, is as yet unaugmented by a fully capable AI technology. What are your thoughts on how the AI component will advance these capacities 
And what do you feel about, for example, the sort of chatbot story and the talk of sentience and, um, you know, the sacking of software engineer Blake uh, Lemoine or Lemian or whatever his name was. What do you feel about that, Doc? AI is part of the story, obviously. It is also potentially dangerous in its own right. Uh, it will make these capabilities that they have even more powerful. For example, we just finished, in fact, I've not, I've not announced this publicly, this will be my first announcement, but we've just finished uh, our first exploration of what we call DPE, the digital personalization effect. And what we've shown is that if we, if we show people biased content, we can produce shifts easily of 20% or more in their voting preferences. If we personalize the content, which of course Google is famous for doing, if we personalize it based on some things we know about those people and what kinds of media sources they trust and news sources and celebrities, if we personalize the content so it's coming from sources they personally trust, that shift goes up to over 70%, from 20% shift to 70% shift. That's just by personalizing. And AI, of course, makes it much, much easier and smoother to personalize content. That's one of the main dangers here. So the fact that these companies have always relied on AI to some extent and now are relying on it more and more makes them more powerful and far more dangerous all the more reason why we have to capture the ephemeral content that they use to manipulate people. And I'm gonna say it a third time, mygooglesearch.com because we are desperately in need of help. Uh, I'm just being honest with you. I mean, we, we desperately need help. We, we can't do this ourselves. I have a team of almost 50 people helping, uh, uh, working on this day and night. A lot of them are volunteers. Uh, it's very, very, difficult what we're doing. It's never been done before, but we're doing it and we're doing it well. And we need people's help to make sure that this can be done on a larger scale. For those of you out there who care about such things, all donations are going to a 501c3 public charity. They're all fully tax deductible. Um, so sorry that I have to keep interrupting with uh, this begging for money, but uh, that's the reality. You know, what mm -hmm. we're doing is expensive. It's new and uh, it's important. It's yeah. extremely important. It sounds important in a way that's almost difficult to conceive of. When you were talking before about the impact of um, personalized data, it made me realize that we're simply not evolved to live in a world where information can be curated in that manner. I imagine... I imagine that the roots of behavioralism must have, you know, a component that's anthropological and ethnographic and how we are evolved to relate to one another and how we're evolved to trust sources of information, how a consensus between a group is established and to have tools that can wallpaper your reality like a kind of chrome sphere surrounding your mind is... Uh, it's in a sense beyond our, it's beyond sugar. It's beyond sugar in terms of an, an agent of interruption, stimulation and control. So I recognize how important what you're doing is. I can hear that you're you know, necessarily evangelical about continuing the work because it's seismic and pertains to sort of cornerstones of our 
uh, as yet still called civilization, like democracy, like judiciary, like the ability to have open conversations, like important, important principles around which we presumed society was being built, but for a while have suspected that in a sense, these are simply gestures that are put in place while real power does what real power wants to do. And, and that kind of power with this kind of utility is truly terrifying. Can you speak for a moment about the aspect of, uh, from from a behavioralist perspective, how we are not, you know, because in a sense, right, I'm a person, obviously, and I imagine that I'd be able to go, oh, well, I'm getting very biased information here from Google. How is it that we simply are not able to discern, tackle, remain objective, keep some kind of distance from this experience why is it so powerful from a almost from a anthropological and behavioral perspective a couple of issues there first of all most people can't see bias in the content that's being presented to them so those people are very easy to shift and in some demographic groups you can easily shift uh, upwards of 80 percent of uh, of voting preferences Uh, some people are just very very vulnerable to this kind of uh, of manipulation because they uh, they trust uh, companies like Google. They trust uh, algorithmic output because they have no idea what algorithms are. They trust computers because they think computers are inherently objective. So you've got all that working against you. And then there's another factor, which is really, really scary. And some of the big studies that we've done, there's always a small group of people who do see the bias. Now, it's a small group, but with a big enough study, you know, that group is large enough for us to look at them separately. And here's the thing. The people who see the bias, they shift even farther in the direction of the bias. Now, how can that be? Why would that be? Well, because presumably they're they're thinking, well, I can see there's bias here. And of course, uh, Google is objective or computer output is objective or algorithms are objective. So, and it's clearly, it's clearly preferring that candidate over this candidate. So that candidate really must be best. And those shifts, the shifts among the people who can see the bias are larger than the shifts among the people who can't see the bias. So, you know, there are no protections here. This is a whole new world of influence and manipulation The only protection that I know of for sure that works is by doing to them what they do to us, by surveilling them, capturing the data so that it can be looked at carefully by authorities and courts. You know, I'll tell you something. The UK and the EU, as you know, have been far more aggressive against Google in particular than any government agency in the US because, you know, it's a US company. So the EU has fined Google over and over again, more than 10,000, excuse me, 10 million euros in fines, also big fines in in the UK. You know what? It has no impact on these companies whatsoever. They've ordered Google to do this and that. Google has completely ignored them. What is lacking in the EU and the UK is a monitoring system to measure compliance with whatever the new laws and regulations are, but there are no monitoring systems in the EU and the UK, and Google knows that. They completely ignore all of these various agreements and orders because no one is monitoring. No monitoring means you can't measure compliance. Well, 
I imagine we're going to have to be pretty clear about how to find your work because I don't imagine it comes up very easily <laughs> on a Google search. Um, Dr. Robert Epstein, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for conveying this complex information in such an easy to understand in spite of the vastness of the task and the scale of the challenge. Thanks for giving us some suggestions of what a solution might look like and making it clear this is something that's happening right now and how difficult it is to detect and yet there is a way to oppose it and I would recommend that all of you learn more about Dr. Robert's work by going to drrobertepstein.com and mygoogleresearch.com Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure we'll be talking again, although these conversations might be difficult to find online. Thank you. Thank you. That shows you the necessity of supporting us by clicking the red awaken button and joining and supporting our community. Without a direct connection to you, it's going to become increasingly difficult to communicate with you in a curated and controlled cultural space. On the show tomorrow, we have Glenn Greenwald. Imagine the information that he's going to be able to convey on this subject, as well as war, the pandemic, legacy media, corruption. If you do become an awakened wonder and join our community, and I urge you to do that. You've just heard what Dr. Robert Epstein has described, almost a necessity to do that. You'll get access to guided meditations, readings, questions and answers. And I want to thank you that have recently become new annual supporters like Truth, Fuller Gave, Balu, Lucky Lou, Magic Peace, Love, Ray, Pardon, Snuffle Dog, The Kennedys, Freddie Flintstone and so many more. Thank you for joining us. We really need you now more than ever. Join us tomorrow, not for more of the same. We'd never insult you with that, but for more of the different. Until then, if you can, stay free. Many